Thank you for joining me for this Coffee with the Editor with Railways Africa magazine. I'm joined uh, by Andy this morning. He is the president of the Institution of Railway Signaling Engineers. Perhaps to give everybody a bit of a history. We were incorporated on the 3rd of December 1912 and historically it was a group of engineers as they were then. They were very regional in the UK and this was an institution that was built to further the science of signaling telecommunications and they wished to further that and support the industry uh, and out of that we, we formed our articles of association so we, uh, we we promptly became that type of organization and in, in, in organizing the institution we have a, uh, a council which includes membership levels because we're, we're split into member fellow associate so how did you land up here in uh, South Africa South Africa was a region that was seen as it needed to be visited. And it's just right and proper that sometimes we come and see the places and see what challenges they've got so we can link back to the HQ, which is fundamentally there to have a base of documentation, uh, a base of knowledge uh, and experience to then say, well, if we've got these issues, we need to look at doing this, or if we've got uh, some direction that we can give. Setting up um, the, IRS, the IRSE, uh, here in South Africa, when was that founded? Yeah. It was May 1981. Having just had your tour um, um, of some of uh, our railway operations here, um, what are your thoughts of that? Well, the, the uh, as to be said, these guys have done a fantastic job of hosting me uh, to <laughs> be able to see uh, different uh, facets of the organisation. And of course I'm based in the UK. And, mm -hmm touch base with a lot of other countries. Um, in the UK we've gone through similar things that it seems that South Africa have gone through but we've ended up with one infrastructure owner. Uh, one thing, uh, and I mentioned this in our first technical day, uh, I think for any country I would say this, that if you've got more than one infrastructure owner mm. it becomes quite a task to bring those people together and in terms of our particular specialism if you will Mm. Uh, because we provide the control and safety systems for that infrastructure uh, it, it makes investment decisions and longer term decisions quite difficult because you've got possibly in worst case scenario it would be a nightmare to me if there's two or three or four infrastructure owners or pockets mm. of infrastructure owned by different people with maybe different objectives and directions uh, which means we don't always get the systems to align uh, not wanting to be very very techy but mm. If we've got a system here and a system there, we get to a point where they might need to speak to each other. If they're not really thought about, and that isn't really thought about, uh, you end up with more costs because you've got to interface between those two. Mm -hmm. it, it puts a lot of pressure on maintenance, planning, and that's a difficulty. That's one my observations. I think an infrastructure mm. owner is a pretty good model. Uh, and in other parts of the world, they've split infrastructure and operations, but there's only one infrastructure owner. Yeah. So that makes decisions. So how, how do you, and this is slightly off topic, but particularly relevant, um, what role does your organisation play in terms of, you know, that harmonisation? So like uh, in Europe, for example, trains, this train from here can travel all the way through Europe and there is there is a commonality in terms of, in terms of being able to speak that signaling language all the way through the network. Um, we're obviously going to have 
um, a need or a want here in South Africa to integrate with the rest of, of the region. So I'm assuming that you'll be able to provide quite a lot of knowledge sharing and, and information in order to, to facilitate that. Um, because, you know, talking across the region, it's going to be, it's going to become a challenge. Yeah. And, and we're not as developed as the rest of Europe. Sure. I mean, one of the beauties of the institution is that we are a, a totally separate organisation. And we provide independence, specialist knowledge, mm. uh, and access to knowledge, uh, a body of knowledge that we've built since 1912. Yes. Uh, as well as experts that have worked in many countries. Uh, so, uh, and particularly as an example, what we've done recently, the government in the UK, and this could be uh, put across different countries, but they've got a very difficult problem with crossing the railway. Um, and, and if you've ever seen things about level crossings, particularly, they're very difficult things to control with cars, scooters, bikes, passengers. Mm. Uh, we have a particular problem in the UK where we have gated crossings. Um, and signage and control of an information for the public is a real mm. issue and we've had deaths there's no two ways about it we've had really serious incidents and the government proposed new signage and control for those one of the bodies that they looked to to comment on the government paper was the institution of railway signal engineers so mm. I as president formed a group of a half a dozen experts to go through the proposals and the questions that were raised by government to comment. Mm. So that's the role that we can play and that can be emulated in South Africa, it can be emulated in Europe, it can be in Australasia. We'll, we'll bring in that independence and opinion mm. um, to help them. Uh, obviously we're not, we're an institution of railway signatures, we're not the government of the country. <laughs> so <laughs> the, yes, difficulty, <laughs> the difficulty is each country will have uh, a, a government and direction and funding mm. and, and various decisions that they'll make, uh, we will certainly give an opinion uh, and, and presently back in the UK we're, uh, we're, we're quite vigorously making our opinion known about one or two issues to the infrastructure owner because we've got concerns. How many active members do you guys have globally and um, also just bring it down to, to our Southern African section? Yeah, I could proudly say for the last three years or so, we've steadily kept our 5,000 membership worldwide. And in South Africa, I'm going to quote the figure because I've talked to membership, because <laughs> we're in the, the very period where people renew the membership and, and, mm. and we know what that figure is, and it's about 42 in South Africa. Skills development and, and training our young signaling engineers, you know, those that are coming into the industry. Foundation of the institution uh, because obviously, again, different countries, different companies will have apprenticeship, graduate schemes, um, and uh, as a, a pillar of what we provide, we have an exam uh, organisation which is built into four modules uh, where people can study, uh, and in uh, many of the, the, the local sections there'll be a study group where people will look at a, a, a syllabus for particular modules across the signalling discipline and, and the, the comms discipline. Uh, and every year in October uh, there's an annual exam um, and a route to our membership is for people to complete four of those modules. Uh, by the time that they've completed those modules uh, they'll be recognised as a, at a member level mm. which really says you've studied to this level, your underpinning knowledge is at a certain point in your career. Mm. Uh, so that really supports aspiring engineers, young engineers into the industry 
uh, along with apprenticeships, graduate programmes, workplace uh, experience. So we fundamentally focus uh, and, and offer that product, product which is again done around the globe because we keep it in a fundamental sense of the principles of signal engineering for people yeah. to be able to do it and also align it to uh, different countries will have uh, principles so the UK might have a set of principles, South Africa will have a set of principles, Australia so it will differ slightly. Uh, we allow people to choose what standards they're answering the question against we then have experts in that country that then mark the, the exam modules and then people get their results in that way. But that's our route, one of our routes into uh, membership level. Uh, and at the same time, in uh, particularly in the UK, mm. uh, but I'll, I'll bring the, the, the rest of the globe in shortly, but <laughs> particularly in the UK, in the late 80s, we had a disastrous accident uh, which was caused by poor practices in the signalling arena. It's a place called Clapham Junction, just outside London, uh, and, and over 30 people were killed. Sure. That was down to procedure, working practices, particular things, and again the IRC got involved in the, the consequent uh, uh, reflections and reports, mm. very famous in UK terms, but even in a worldwide sense. Uh, the hidden report uh, highlighted and, and, and pinpointed what had gone wrong. Um, uh, just for the audience in the UK, we decided then to privatise our railways, uh, which gave us quite a concern about the people that were going to work on the industry at this field of, of, of something that could kill people in a very basic sense. Uh, so that we, we formed, were asked to form uh, a licensing scheme. So therefore, if you're going to work on, uh, in a particular, let's say design, for example, there's a license category, which has performance criteria and then there's a process of workplace assessment, competence assessment, to then actually be licensed in a particular discipline mm. using design, but there's also installation, testing, maintenance in the categories uh, to assure the industry that we got people who were competent to do the, the role that they were actually uh, being employed to do. Mm -hmm. uh, the real good news over the last two or three years uh, is that we're seeing interest in that around the globe. And we, we've got a lot of discussions ongoing uh, with various countries and one of the countries I visit very soon in Kuala Lumpur uh, there's uh, to give it a level of discussion we've got we're going to be signed I'm going to be signing sorry um, in a couple of months no a month actually um, a memorandum of understanding for us to work with Kuala Lumpur University to align their uh, content with the uh, with the exam and also to look at the licensing scheme to be placed in that particular region to give the people in that region the surety of who's working on the system mm. is actually competent uh, to do that role uh, which is a key issue of making sure that we've got safe railways around the globe. And it is a key thing and it's, and it's a critical safety, safety area and um, I don't know if we have enough skills coming in from from a South African perspective coming into or taking an interest in, in I becoming. I can tell you it's a worldwide challenge okay. <laughs> because in the UK we lose engineers on an annual basis and we don't recruit enough graduates or apprentices. We know there's a gap mm. uh, and I, I think that's a pretty similar field. I would say one or two countries, maybe Australasia is doing a little bit better. It's, it's a worldwide problem. Uh, 
and one of the joys of being here this week was to go to the Gabella plant mm -hmm. to see a 48% female employee level, which was fantastic to see. Uh, and something we're deeply committed to improving in the institution because our male to female membership is something that needs to improve. Um, but yeah, to, to encourage people into engineering and also female engineers, uh, which was a little bit of a theme with, with, uh, for my year because I've, I've had two eminent female engineers, one of whom I trained originally, okay. uh, to speak uh, 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 as part of my presidential papers. A president gets to deliver seven presidential papers within a year, and, that, and I'm happy to say two of mine were female engineers. When we say a signaling engineer or even the institute, you know, railway signaling engineers, it's not just signaling. There are some, there are other subcomponents in there. Yeah. So it, unpack the word signaling. You would talk about signaling and telecommunications. And actually they, they were two separate departments mm. for, for many, many years. Um, but as with the advancement of, and of course, remember we're, we're in the, the business of advancing the science. Mm. Um, but we, we talk about signaling telecommunications, but we talk about communications, train control, traffic management, and aligned systems because signaling has changed from a very this is signaling to then say well how are we going to control the system well we've brought comms more into so telecoms uh, communications has been brought far more into uh, the signaling discipline as well as uh, uh, employing at a basic level employing computers and systems to control trains because traditionally we've had humans mm -hmm. um, but the problem with humans is that we're we're, we're, we're subject to error um, there's a good debate between computers and humans, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's the question that all of this has become, mm. and we very often now talk about the digital railway, mm. more so in a lot of places. We're talking about passenger information systems, interactive comms, so we know how many passengers, we know loading, we know information, mm. and the critical point you made, you, you do need somebody at a point to make a sensible decision because in the very worst Mm. Of context, people can get hurt. Yes. So we have to widen that a little bit to the communications market uh, and the traffic management system. So, and also very traditionally, if you go along a very traditional railway line, you'll see people who don't understand railways deeply would think, "Oh, there's a traffic light there." Mm. That's communicating very key information to a driver of a train, because remember, as you said, if you've got 500 people on a train that goodness knows how many tons mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of signaling systems still today uh, the driver is looking at a an aspect in a signal which is telling them how far they can go mm. and what they should be doing with their train as far as braking controlling the, the train uh, what we're actually doing that is taking that from the track side and moving that into the train cab mm. because we've got the comms because we've got wi-fi because we've got uh, internet computers we're putting information on the cloud uh, and we're putting a, a screen into the, the cab with the driver, giving them the information. And then most importantly, in modern systems, if the driver is doing something that shouldn't be doing, critical, critical issue going too fast mm -hmm. when they're going to somewhere where they should be stopping. Uh, that's a critical factor that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually supervise the driver and we will, the system will break the train to bring the train to a stop because we know the drivers could be in trouble in some cases and very simple things of a driver touching something every 15 seconds keeps the system aware that the driver is there because mm. worst case scenario they could have a 
stroke, attack. heart attack, mm. etc. Uh, so the, the trains systems are moving from trackside and, and very pertinent for South Africa at the moment with what this industry is suffering. Mm. We're moving equipment that people vandalise or steal, which gives us horrendous problems and is giving the South African uh, infrastructure that challenge mm. right now, let alone the power system. Uh, we're moving that into the cab. Yeah. Um, and, and people will hear the phrase, but we, we start to talk about ELTMS, which is a, a European based system, mm. but is now going global. But it does fundamentally move an awful lot of tra trackside assets into the train. Into the train. And into the cloud. And into the cloud. When we here in South Africa look at our signaling system and the rest of the, the region, being, mm -hmm. being, let's say, Southern Africa, um, we're very different. Our technology is very different to to what the European environment. From us catching up with the technology that is currently available mm -hmm. versus what is coming. I mean, it's quite exciting that, you know, I want to say Internet of Things, but it's, it's not really. It's more than that. More than that, um, yeah. and, the, and the technology that's available, is, it's extremely exciting to see what's coming down the line and the impact that that's going to have on safety, but more so the impact that that's going to have on operational efficiencies. Mm -hmm. um, what for you do you think will be the most profound change in technology? The most profound will be the, the final linking of the systems. The criticality of something like ERTMS, for example, which moves a lot of equipment into the cab, uh, where it actually gives us, in simple terms, we're, we're very uh, limited at the moment to a certain extent because we've got two trains. We have to keep them separated by a set distance. We talk about, uh, very often in basic terms, we talk about a fixed block. Imagine if you had a system where a train is going at a, a X speed, the train that's following that train knows what that train's doing because that's being communicated via a system, via a radio system and a comms system. If that train is going faster, this train can safely go faster because in this train there's a computer mm. that tells everything about that train and what it breaks like, what it needs to do and what that train's doing. And it's constantly in contact. We can actually move those trains closer together and a big pull for everybody in any country in the world is capacity. Mm. You go to a country like Singapore, for example, Imagine how many people live there uh, and getting them in and out of the city. You really have a capacity demand. Yes. Uh, but any system has got that. And if, even if you bring in freight as well, you can move freight more efficiently. Um, uh, we face a battle, but the most profound change will be the adoption of the technology and new rolling stock and new infrastructure. Mm. But actually the magic is they've got to happen at the same time. In the UK, we're probably going to see the best benefit of ERTMS over this year into next year, possibly, because we're renewing a whole section of track from London up towards past Peterborough, towards Doncaster in the, on the eastern side of the UK. New track, new trains, new control systems, new passenger information systems, mm. new train management systems. All of those things come together. Uh, the most profound change is when we actually get, dare I say, a government thinking actually if we do this all at the same time we'll actually benefit massively yes but the, the the battle is to persuade governments and people who control purse strings mm. that that is the way um, so as good as it can be um 
and taking into account all the safety and security benefits and efficiency benefits mm -hmm. offered by by the progress of technology. Do we still need train drivers? The answer is no we don't. In some systems, particularly where you're looking at an when I say an enclosed system, but let's say uh, a system where there's no other trains that interrupt my service and I go from A to B, mm. let's say Johannesburg to, P to Pretoria. If there were no other trains that crossed over me or caused me any, because mm -hmm. uh, obviously just think about a road, you've got a junction, you've got traffic coming this way, traffic going that way, it's more difficult than just going. Mm. If I've got a system that's just Johannesburg to Pretoria, completely automated, completely separate, doesn't have anybody disturbing it, doesn't have any level crossings, because mm -hmm. we've got to make sure we get the other infrastructure things out of the way. Yeah, we could have a train that would be fully automated and wouldn't require a driver. Mm. and it I would just, be perfectly safe. Yeah, I just ask because I see a growing trend internationally for um, driverless uh, trains, especially in the passenger yeah. sense. Um, and then if we look at the project in Australia, uh, that is a completely autonomous, I think is the right word, yeah. train from the mine um, to yeah. the port and it works hella efficiently. I mean, there's just no other way about it. Technical Although, term is grade of automation. There we go. Whilst they still have the train driver, his role has changed and it's actually become far more important in my view. You know, the troubleshooting should something go wrong with the train. Yeah, I mean the big misconception if you say driverless to a lot of people, I mean particularly drivers let's say, mm. <laughs> for instance, because you get down to union level. The actual reality of driverless trains for example is that you don't have the massive reduction in staff that you think you would have. People need to be deployed for separate duties and slightly different duties. Uh, and to put it in context, we've had uh, driverless trains in London, let's say, for example, on the underground since about the late 60s. Mm -hmm. But it's because we talk about this grade of automation, because what you can have is a driver in a cab who is watching the information that they've got on the screen uh, and may be responsible for opening the doors at the station, okay. making sure the passenger's safe and then closing the doors. Mm. As you increase that automation, that just gets done automatically. Mm. And then ultimately, you remove the driver. For the audience, if you go to London and go on the Docklands Light Railway, that is a totally driverless system. If you go to Denmark and go around the suburbs of Denmark, you've got a completely driverless mm. train. There are no drivers in the cab. And of course, you've then got uh, very tested, tried and tested systems that break the train efficiently, stop it at the station, open the doors, mm. close the doors using sensors, cameras, etc. Um, but yeah, it, it is possible. Andy, thank you very much for your time. You're I welcome. wish you well. I look forward to supporting the Institute as uh, we go forward. And, and um, I look forward to seeing new signalling engineers come through into the market as, as technology gets more exciting. Okay, thank you.